Saint Kateri Tekakwita once said, If I should become sick and unable to work, then I shall be like the Lord on the cross. He will have mercy on me and help me, I am sure. Welcome to the 17th episode of St. Dimpna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to see the dignity and value we have, even in the midst of our suffering, precisely because it leads us closer to our Lord on the cross. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimpna's Mentions. Shout out to everybody sticking with me, even though I've got a cold. I hope it's not too bad for y'all. First up, J.M. Kramer stopped by to ask that we discuss disability awareness and the importance of using your talents for Christ. Let's kick this off by praying for everyone who feels like they're left on the outside looking in due to their disability, especially those who feel unwelcomed in our Catholic Church, that they may experience the healing and compassionate love of a community that embraces them. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks so much for sending this topic in. I'm really excited to be a part of the fight for pushing for radical inclusivity in our Catholic Church for all our disabled sisters and brothers. It absolutely baffles me that we often seem to be lagging behind our secular counterparts when it comes to inclusivity. If anything, the gospel demands that we place our sisters and brothers with disabilities at the absolute head of the table. Luke 14, 13 obviously comes to mind. We have to take this gospel to heart and include our sisters and brothers with disabilities into the decision-making process at our parishes from the beginning to learn the best ways to make Make more welcoming and inclusive parishes? Do we push for more ASL masses for our deaf sisters and brothers? Do we work toward having a transportation ministry that helps provide a ride to those who otherwise would have no way to get to mass? Do we organize parish events with accessibility at the top of our minds? The first step, of course, is listening to the needs of those who have sadly been left on the outside looking in. A lot of times we think we're doing the right thing. We get together at a parish council meeting. We put welcoming the disabled or accessibility and inclusivity on the top of the agenda, and we discuss it and pat ourselves on the back. But was there a single disabled person at the meeting? Did we ask around to those who are directly impacted for their advice or list of priorities we should consider before we get started with making decisions? This has to be where we start, listening. As to the second part of your question, everyone has something to give. Everyone has a contribution to make to the church, the parish, the faith, to one another. And we have to help people find that thing they can contribute, that thing they can give that all of us so badly need, and give them a means for sharing it with the wider community. Again, it starts with listening, it starts with being welcoming, and it starts with truly wanting to build a community where everyone can be Christ to others and see Christ in others. Next, we have Anonymous checking in. I was wondering if you could give some advice on the podcast about how to get a friend into therapy. One of my friends opened up to me about being sexually abused in her last relationship, but she does not recognize it as abuse because she was dating the guy abusing her. She had a history of abuse in her family, and when I try to nudge her into therapy, she never replies to me. Instead, she keeps chasing after new boys, trying to find a relationship again. I really want her to find I really want her to find the help that she needs from a professional and not just from me, a biased friend who cannot help her much more than I already have. 
Let's all turn to prayer for every single individual person who's been abused in a relationship, most especially those who have a hard time recognizing the abuse and those stuck in the cycle of violence that entraps so many of us that Christ may bring his light and his peace to their lives. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I want to be sure to start with some firm statements here for whoever needs to hear them. Abuse is never acceptable. It's not acceptable from someone you're in a relationship with. It's not acceptable from a family member. It's not acceptable from a coworker or boss. It's not acceptable from a stranger. Generally speaking, there are six different types of abuse. Physical, sexual, verbal, psychological, financial, and cultural. And I want to make sure everyone hears this. No one not a single person on earth deserves to be abused for any reason by anyone. No one deserves to be controlled, manipulated, intimidated, threatened, demeaned, forced to do anything against their will, or made to feel unsafe in any way. If you've walked with anyone who has suffered abuse in a relationship, however, you know that the abuse they have suffered can lead to them having a different conclusion. Sometimes when we're being abused, we write it off or minimize it by saying things like, but when it's good, it's good, or I should have been better so he wouldn't get angry, or I shouldn't deny him sex, he's my husband after all. While many of us look from the outside and get frustrated with a friend or family member who stays in an abusive relationship, we have to remember to have compassion, put ourselves in their shoes, and try our best to help them in a way that doesn't lead to them cutting off their relationship with us. As we've covered before, it can feel impossible to successfully encourage a family member or a friend to get into therapy to find healing from the difficulties they've been experiencing. There's just something about a friend or family member encouraging us to seek therapy that leads to us feeling so judged, so broken, and we typically rush to become defensive and angry uh, that the person would even suggest it. Again, it goes back to our need to stand up and fight against the stigma around accessing mental health care. So we can try in the least blaming way possible in a way that shows that maybe we've benefited from therapy in the past, that it doesn't mean we're weak or broken, but rather that we have strength. I like to emphasize the fact that we have such a hard time seeing how we're doing and how our lives are going from the inside. And a therapist is really just an impartial outside observer who can help us see things more clearly. At the same time, we have to be willing to place everyone we love into God's hands when we recognize that our efforts aren't going anywhere. God loves every single one of us more than we can imagine. Prayer works. It really works. And we can entrust our loved ones to him like no tomorrow when we feel like our own efforts have failed. Hang in there, friend. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Rita. Rita of Cassia was a wife, mother, widow, and member of a religious community. And can I just say, I've been saying Rita of Cassica for my entire life, so apologies, St. Rita. Born in Italy in 1381, Rita knew from a young age that she wanted to be a nun, but she was basically forced into marrying a cruel and abusive husband. After 18 years of marriage, her husband was killed in a brawl around town, and her two sons had also died. She turned to the Augustinian nuns, but was initially turned down because she was a widow. Eventually, her 
her persistence paid off and she joined the order. As a nun, she became known for her austerity, prayerfulness, and love of the poor. She possibly developed a form of the stigmata with wounds on her forehead being associated by others with Christ's crown of thorns. She cared for the sick and even provided counseling to lay folks who came by to see her. Like St. Jude before her, St. Rita has become known as the patron of impossible causes, and she's also the patron of difficult marriages, infertility, and parenthood. Her fortitude in the midst of violence, abuse, and grief just flat out humbles me and encourages me to carry on. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, so here we go. O glorious Saint Rita, your pleadings before the divine crucifix have been known to grant favors that many would call the impossible. Lovely Saint Rita, so humble, so pure, so devoted in your love to thy crucified Jesus, speak on my behalf for my petition, which seems so impossible from my humbled position, that all who listen to this podcast be blessed with the peace of Christ in a noticeable way this very day. Be propitious, O glorious Saint Rita, to my petition, showing thy power with God on behalf of thy supplicant. Be lavish to me, as thou hast been in so many wonderful cases, for the greater glory of God. I promise, dear Saint Rita, if my petition is granted to glorify thee by making known thy favor, to bless and sing thy praises forever, relying then upon thy merits and power before the sacred heart of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Liz gets us started. Could you talk about sex addiction and how to help a loved one who is suffering? My cousin confided in me that he's been cheating on his wife for nine years and doesn't see a problem with it. Additionally, my best friend told me that she has started working as a phone sex worker. She said it makes her feel powerful and helps her regain her sexuality after getting raped. How can we help loved ones suffering from sex addiction in a world that promotes fornication? Lord have mercy, Liz, thank you for bringing this question up. Let's start by praying for all those suffering from an addiction to sex, that they may find peace and comfort in the loving arms of Mary, and most especially for your cousin and best friend. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Let's break open the big book on the coffee table, the DSM-4, for help in understanding exactly what sex addiction, officially called hypersexuality, is. It was removed from the DSM-5 update, by the way, which I'm sure shocks absolutely no one. To be diagnosed, one must see the following for a period of at least six months, having recurrent intense sexual fantasies, urges, and or behaviors. The behaviors consistently interfere with other activities and obligations. Behaviors occur in response to dysphoric mood states like anxiety, depression, boredom, irritability, or stressful life events. Engaging in consistent but unsuccessful efforts to control or reduce sexual fantasies, urges, or behaviors. Engaging in sexual behaviors while disregarding the potential for physical or emotional harm to self or others. And the frequency of in, uh, or intensity of sexual fantasy, urges, or behaviors cause significant distress or impairment. 
It's important to note, as Psychology Today does, hypersexuality may also be linked to depression and anxiety. Some individuals may avoid difficult emotions such as sadness or shame and seek temporary relief by engaging in sexual behavior. Sexual cravings, therefore, can mask other issues such as depression, anxiety, and stress. And again, Psychology Today helps share that treatment may include rebuilding relationships, managing stress, identifying triggers for sexual thoughts or compulsive sexual behaviors, and finding alternative behaviors that are less destructive. The situations you described in your question shows two people who really aren't seeing any negative negatives or distress from their behavior, at least from their own perspective, right? And that makes encouraging them to get help really hard. Even if you try and point some out, it can lead to them getting defensive and shutting you out and that wouldn't be the best way forward instead pray for them keep your relationship going with them and try to find those little moments where god may be inviting you to guide them as best you can hang in there Karen is up next with this comment, not my wife, but I'm sure a great Karen nonetheless. One reason alcoholism in women often goes unnoticed is that we tend to spread our addictions among several different substances at once. To be slightly addicted to a lot of things is far more acceptable than to be enslaved by addiction to one thing. Okay, thanks for bringing up the topic of the lack of attention to the seriousness of alcoholism in women, Karen. Let's quickly pray for all suffering from addiction that they may be freed from that bondage and be willing to receive help and maintain that freedom. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our culture has a problem with alcohol, and the problem is, is that we don't see anything wrong with drinking. Despite the fact that we all know people in our immediate circles who have died, fallen ill, lost relationships, lost everything due to drinking, and yet we still don't tend to talk about it as the high-priority public health crisis it is. We wear shirts with messages like, wine because kids or mama needs wine and we all agree it's hilarious and healthy and good but we never pause to ask ourselves if we're complacent in perpetuating the sick idea that drinking every day without counting the cost to our bodies and souls is normal good and healthy we really have to step up and fight against this normalization of excessive drinking do we ever stop to realize that as of 2012 an estimated 7.2 percent of american adults had a diagnosable alcohol use disorder that's 17 million people 11.2 million men and 5.7 million women and hold on to your hats an estimated 855,000 children aged 12 to 17 had the disorder as well this is absolutely unacceptable and we have to change the culture you guys i'll wrap this up with the dsm-5 to show you what it takes to receive a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder mild would be two to three of the following symptoms moderate four to five severe six or more alcohol is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than was intended Number two, there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use. Number three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain alcohol, use alcohol, or recover from its effects. Next, craving or a strong desire to use alcohol. Next, recurrent alcohol use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Continued alcohol use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of alcohol. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of alcohol use. Recurrent alcohol use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Alcohol use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent 
physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by alcohol. Tolerance, as defined either by the following, a need for markedly increased amounts of alcohol to achieve intoxication, or a markedly diminished effect with the continued use of the same amount of alcohol. And lastly, withdrawal, as manifested by either of the following, the characteristic withdrawal syndrome for alcohol, or alcohol or closely related substance like benzodiazepines, Ativan, Clonopin, uh, right, Xanax, is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. Again, two to three of those is a mild, a mild diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, four to five moderate, six or more severe. Venerable Matt Talbot, pray for us. Rachel brings us home with this one. I've been seeing the same therapist since last November, and she is wonderful. I thank God for her every day. However, after the last three or four sessions, I've left feeling worse than when I arrived. I'm not sure why this is. In the past, I would usually feel better about myself and motivated to tackle whatever homework she gave me. But now after our sessions, I just feel like crying and shutting down. The only thing I want to do is go sit in church and cry. I know Jesus is always with me, but I just feel so alone and empty. My therapist has been emphasizing the importance of having a support system outside of therapy, and I'm realizing mine is pretty small and almost non-existent. Any advice or prayers would be greatly appreciated. All right, everyone, you know how this works by now. Stop what you're doing and join me in prayer for Rachel that she may find the healing and peace God so desperately wants her to experience. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. Rachel, let me put your mind at ease with what you're experiencing. It's absolutely normal. Our feelings about how therapy is going, how we feel when we leave a session, our motivation to complete the activities given to us to help in therapy, they all wax and wane as time goes by. If I went to therapy for a year, the ebb and flow of my happiness with therapy and my motivation to continue would naturally come and go, and that's okay. It's totally normal. That being said, I have three pieces of advice. Number one, Tell your therapist how you're feeling. This is so important because a therapist needs to know how you're responding to the treatment in order to modify things moving forward. Therapists and everyone else in our lives, for that matter, are not mind readers. And we all need to realize that we have to tell people how we are feeling on the inside if we want them to adjust or respond in a way that helps us. Number two, group therapy. Ask your therapist about different group therapy options in the area that might be appropriate for you and helpful for you and try them out. The dynamics of group therapy are totally different than one-on-one. -on -one, and you also might find it's helpful in terms of widening your support system. The cool thing about groups is that you know the therapist starts it off, but really the people in the group start to support each other and it's just so beneficial. Number three, typically therapy should be relatively brief. I think TV and movies have led to us thinking that people go to therapy for 20 years for anxiety and to work through the difficult relationships from their past, but this idea of therapy is really outdated and sadly leads to people healing more slowly and spending way more money than they should. These days, we've come to learn that therapy that aggressively targets our symptoms and difficulties in the moment can have true 
lasting and meaningful change with something like six to eight sessions. Of course, working through a trauma history or similar issues might take a little bit longer, but I want everyone to know that therapy can work quickly by addressing the situation and giving you tools that you can use. You go on to use these tools in your own life to battle the symptoms you face after you leave therapy. So I'll be praying for you, Rachel, and I think everyone else here will too. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves, take care of yourselves, and if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna. <laughs>